welcome to Gesundheit with Jacobus, Health Talk Radio, integrating allopathic and all-natural medicine one show at a time. Here is your host, Jacobus Hollowine. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show. It's good to be with you, and uh, it's nice to be back in the studio. I had a wonderful time. I visited my grandchildren, of course, not the grandchildren. They were there, but uh, of course, it's my son and his wife at their home, and they were going to go on a little trip, and uh, I had a chance with my wife to go and visit the grandkids, uh, and uh, well, we're happy to be back. Last night, came home and had to get ready for the show today, and I am happy to to do that. I have with me in the studio Dr. Ronald Buss. Uh, Dr. Buss, good morning to you. Good morning. All right. We're going to talk more about him, about his uh, history and everything. But just want to let you know that this program is called Gesundheit with Jacobus, and I am Jacobus, Jacobus Holloway, and I appreciate your tuning in today. As always, we want to let you know that when we talk about health, healing, and healthy lifestyles, which is what the word Gesundheit means, health or good health, we are not here to diagnose, treat, or cure. Purpose is always to educate, inform, and entertain. We always recommend that you consider the guest after the program, that you uh, pay them a visit, give them a call in the office, and uh, find more information for yourself to uh, to get the healthiest you can be. That's always the purpose. Now, sometimes the guest is out of state, and then we always recommend you see a physician of your own choice and use the information that you have received today to uh, further educate yourself and be in conversation with your physician or specialist about the topic that concerns you. So all in all, it's a do-it-yourself kind of thing. We just provide you with some information. And I hope we're going to have a wonderful time. Looks like the topic is exciting. Uh, bioidentical hormones. Let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Buzz. Dr. Ronald Buzz was raised in Portland, Oregon. He attended Portland State University and Oregon Health Sciences University where he earned his medical doctor degree in 1975. He has been board certified in emergency medicine since 1986, and he kept certification until December 2016 when he retired from emergency medicine. Dr. Buzz moved to Bozeman and his wife, and with his wife and daughter in 2004. His wife, Diane, is a radiation therapist, and she works at Deaconess Hospital. Their daughter, Haley, is 13, and she attends Second Junior Middle School right here in Bozeman. In 2007, Dr. Buzz and Diane started Aesthetic Medicine of Southwest Montana. Aesthetic Medicine of Southwest Montana. They specialize in light cosmetic skin care. He does all the Botox injections and dermophilus, complex laser applications, and acne consultations. There is a full-time aesthetician who does permanent hair removal, skin rejuvenation, facial treatments, and other skin beauty procedures. Diane is the clinic manager and does some procedures as well. In 2008, Go Figure Weight Loss Center recruited him to be their medical director. This business has grown steadily and successfully over the past eight plus years. In 2014, the Go Figure Weight Loss Center of Billings recruited him to be their director as well. Since retiring from emergency medicine, Dr. Buzz has concentrated solely to both his practice in aesthetic medicine and the weight loss centers. 
Then in February of 2016, he opened his private practice to bioidentical hormone treatment. Dr. Ronald Buss has spent approximately 60 hours in postgraduate medical training on the study of hormone replacement therapy. Now, two different, well, the main address is aesthetic medicine. Aesthetic Medicine of Southwest Montana, that is located on Stadium Drive, 2006 Stadium Drive, Suite 101. And the telephone number on Stadium Drive is 586-9229. Dr. Buzz, absolutely pleasure to have you on the show. Good morning. Good morning. Quite an adventure. And you told me when you walked in the studio, you've been here before. I actually did an interview. I think it was probably... Probably about four or five years ago, uh, we were invited in to talk about Go Figure. Yes. And we did that interview right here. I know. Yeah. Was, uh, <laughs> I, I forgot who they, I don't know if that was Chris uh, at the time, or I don't know who was, who was the host, or who was the, uh, or Mark Allen, maybe? Maybe. I, I don't yeah. really remember the name. It's been long enough. Yeah. But yeah, we had a, a nice time in here, and we had a good talk about Go Figure and the Weight Loss Center. Yeah, we'll talk a little bit about it today. Yes. Kind of, uh, there is a lot that you have uh, acquired, a lot of information, a lot of uh, practical application because of your work in emergency medicine. Give us a little bit of a rundown about uh, how your professional career has shaped. Well, emergency medicine, um, as we all know, um, involves an emergency room or emergency department in a hospital. And when I graduated from medical school, um, I decided that was going to be uh, my pursuit. Um, I started my practice in Portland, Oregon, about uh, 1980, I believe. I worked in a hospital just outside of Portland in Vancouver, Washington. Yeah. And I spent roughly 12 years doing that. Uh, I had a job offer in Southern California uh, in Desert Regional Hospital in Palm Springs, uh, which was a level two trauma center. And um, the job description was pretty much what I was looking for for the next step. Mm-hmm. And in 1990, I moved down to uh, Palm Desert, California. <coughs> Pardon me. And I worked uh, at that facility till about 2004. Uh, about that time, my daughter was a year and a half old, and we decided we'd rather raise her in the Rocky Mountains rather than the California desert. Yeah. And we came up to Montana in roughly 2004, tail end of 2004. Yeah. And um, I did work emergency medicine here in Montana for a few years, uh, not actually in Bozeman, but some of the smaller ERs here in Montana. Um, I found that I was uh, yearning to go back to the trauma setting or the high-volume ER, and I basically went on to what's called a locum tenens company, where they place physicians in different hospitals. Yeah. And over the next six years, um, I spent three years in a very busy hospital just south, south of St. Louis. Um, and uh, I actually commuted there. Uh, I would actually uh, fly out, work three days or so. They'd pay for my condo over there, and then I would come home. Yeah. Uh, so I spent three years doing emergency medicine just south of St. Louis, and then um, another hospital recruited me in Northern California. Uh, same setup, worked there for about three years. And last summer, I retired from emergency medicine. Yeah. You like it? I mean, from that to, to do now your own thing, staying in enforcement all the time? Emergency medicine, everybody knows what happens in ERs, especially B, 
in the bigger cities. In the big, bigger cities. And the medicine is challenging. It's fun. It's rewarding. Um, but there's a lot of stresses that go along with a busy emergency department. Mm-hmm. And it got to the point after working 39 years in an emergency room that it was time to uh, step away. Yeah, I found that some of the negatives of the job were surpassing a lot of the positives in the job. And I decided to step away um, and concentrate on building my private practice here in Bozeman. I do want to ask you about emergency medicine. <laughs> Was it... Uh did you work more night shifts or more day shifts? Actually, most ER physicians divide their time uh, and rotate their time between the different shifts. Um, if there's, um, say, 10 members in the group and it's a busy place with uh, maybe three or four shifts a day, um, you tend to rotate through the different shifts okay. so that um, everybody does an equal amount of nights uh, and uh, everybody does an equal amount of early shifts. And it's just divided up equitably in a group like that. Now, some some of the doctors prefer working nights. So that's yeah. always good for us because that means I work less nights. So for 39 years, pardon me, we rotated shifts uh, on a regular basis. Is it so that the the difference in the shifts, like the night, if mm-hmm. you were a bigger town, I, I just assume, uh, more gunshots, more violence, and during the day would be more car accidents and stuff? You know, it... It, depending on the emergency department you're working in, um, um, there's a predictability to time of day as to volume and busyness. Uh-huh. And uh, just like in real life, when grocery stores get busier in the afternoon yes. and people are out and about, typically the census would build to later afternoon uh, through the hours of one in the morning. That would be the high volume area. And depending on the community you work in, if um, if there's a lot of industry, um, a lot of freeways, um, you tend to see a lot of traumatic patients uh, from car accidents, industrial accidents. Uh, if you worked in a community that had um, perhaps a lower socioeconomic um, presence, um, urban centers would see more of what you talked about, uh, that you know, self-inflicted trauma, if you'll have it, gunshot yeah. wounds, yeah. knife wounds, that you sort bet. of thing. Uh-huh. I I remember a long time ago talking to a medical doctor uh, who she, she was an emergency room doctor in San Francisco. And she was saying in those days, which I wonder, since you've done it for so long, uh, when the whole AIDS epidemic started coming up, she <laughs> said it was, there was blood flying everywhere. You sometimes... You know, how do you deal with that? And of course, we've learned so much. But when that came up, how was that as a physician to be working in an emergency room? It's an interesting question because um, the, those years that I spent in in the trauma center in Palm Springs, it turns out that um, Palm Springs evolved to have a large gay population, gay men population. And in the early 90s to mid-90s, it would not be uncommon for me to manage three or four patients a day that were new diagnosis of AIDS. They would actually come into the hospital very sick with a respiratory infection, Mm -hmm. and we would work that patient up, and we'd do x-rays just like any patient with a severe lung infection. And oftentimes, these people would have 
a chest x-ray pattern that was consistent with a pneumonia called pneumocystis. And typically, that was the first infection that these men would come in with who had AIDS. And so that would start, essentially, uh, the cascade of not only treatment, but referral to AIDS centers in the city to start appropriate antibiotics and long-term care. But that oftentimes, in those days, was the first exposure they had to the healthcare system when they got what they thought was a bad bronchitis or a cold, but it persisted and they got sicker. And it turns out to be uh, an opportunistic infection called pneumocystis or pneumocystis carni, to be uh, uh, exact. And they would present, and a chest x-ray was diagnostic every time. Yes. It almost feels that you were in the doctor's field, not you per se, but being in the emergency medicine, like the Marines are in the military. They just go in the front. You kind of have to first figure line. things out. First line. First line. Isn't Absolutely. It yeah, it is something. It is something. Because you don't know what you get in. You exactly. Have to, you have to think about, I got to help that person. Pardon the cliche. It's like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> it is true. <laughs> it is true. Yeah. Boy, oh boy. I, yeah. I don't know how. It takes a special person, in my opinion, to not be shocked by some of the accidents and what how the body is, uh, you know, separated and right. put apart. I mean, I'm sure you've had to reattach limbs and stuff also well not exactly reattached limbs maybe align limbs would be more appropriate align them okay. yeah for fractures and so forth sure but um everybody asks that question or makes that comment but it's like um it's like any other profession or job certainly when i was in my early years there were times where uh, it was rattling if you'll have it to get in a traumatic patient with severe injuries but over time uh, you adjust and you uh, assimilate, and a lot of these injuries become second nature to you because this is what you do. You can't let those emotions cloud your judgment at the time when you need good judgment. You remember, uh, by the way, folks, uh, Dr. Ronald Buss is my guest today. We're going to be talking about hormone replacement therapy, but as an emergency doctor, he has been in that field for over 39 years. So it is kind of nice to get a little introduction. If we'll also talk about the his work at Go Figure, a medical weight loss program, and a very interesting stuff, I feel, that uh, we're going to discuss. And I already have a feeling we're not going to get done today with all the things that Dr. Buzz has to offer for us. So I see another show in the near future, and especially somebody who has done 60-plus extra hours of training on hormone replacement therapy. I'm sure there's a lot that we can learn from him for both <clears throat> men and women as far as the anti-aging is concerned to correct use of hormone. Um, a question I have for you, Dr. Buss, is going back to the beginning when you were 39 years ago, 40 years ago, when you started in this medicine, what were you doing then as far as equipment, knowledge of the body and how has that changed in 40 years are you excited about the changes i'm sure you are but is it really a big change from 40 years ago well actually uh, there is and the change comes in the technology of basically imaging the body Um, when i started my practice uh, ct scans for example or cat scans were 
just becoming more frequently used, for example, in the emergency room setting. Before that, um, because of the development of that technology, oftentimes in an emergency room, a CAT scanner may or may not even be available. But the ability to image the body on an acute basis, for example, a motor vehicle accident where you've got an unconscious patient, and you, of course you want to rule out a major head injury. Sure. And so the frequency of use of, a, for example, a CAT scanner uh, has basically taken over, in, in some ways, uh, what we used to take for granted of just use, using x-rays. So over those years, the medicine has stayed the same. The injuries have stayed the same. Right. Um, but the biggest change, at least in my mind, is the imaging uh, abilities. And then after CT scans, the development of the MRI scanner uh, and that technology. Um, and surprisingly enough, um, today, uh, an MRI is uh, often used as uh, a diagnostic tool. Yeah even in the acute care setting. Uh -huh. um, because if you have a patient who is unconscious, you don't even know what the injury could be well, or it, where the pain is. Yeah, I think uh, you know, it's still the, the most, uh, most common use for traumatic patients is still the CT scanner. But oftentimes patients present to the emergency room with changing symptoms, uh, chronic headaches, for example. Uh -huh. Maybe um, they come into the emergency room with some sort of deficit-like, stroke-like symptoms. Um, and the attending physician oftentimes, if the CT is negative, mm -hmm. want to look further and to see if there's a tumor that they can't see on a CAT scan, for example. Right. They would want that done on an immediate basis, which will determine what kind of care will unfold for the next several days. Mm -hmm. Did you also do surgeries? Surgery, no, not per se. Uh, what we would do oftentimes in the emergency room, and emergency room physicians are very, very well adept at this, are major lacerations, minor yeah. lacerations, mm -hmm. um, fractures that need to be reduced, uh, open fractures that need to be cleaned out and debrided. Um, that's, that's the type of things we did in the emergency room, not surgery per se. Yes. Wow. Very interesting. Can what a, be. What a life. That is on the edge all the time. Like you said, coming to Montana and working in different areas here in Montana, it was not your speed. It was not. <laughs> yeah, but now you've stepped away from that right. too because it's a lot more calm. Right. You're not dealing with the hyperadrenaline right. all the time, right? Well, not only that, I knew after 39 years that I couldn't do this forever and be effective. Yeah. And so we'll go to the next chapter if you'll have it. <laughs> All right, uh, folks, Dr. Ronald Buss is my guest uh, this morning. We are going to talk about his work in aesthetic medicine, working with uh, the weight loss organization Go Figure Medical Weight Loss Center in Bozeman, and also his bioidentical hormone therapies that he is uh, becoming the expert in to go to in this town. Stay put. We will be right back. So the... Um, your work with Go Figure is uh, something you have talked about in the studio and you have been here before, but um, the, it fascinates me. I, I, I see the amazing advertising in the local newspaper that uh, showed people before and after, and uh, local people will recognize uh, the folks. 
and say, you know, this is really amazing. They have lost it and keep it off and understand what they need to do. And so to me, it is exciting that you have, uh, you're working over there, that you are medically overseeing what is going on with people. Tell me a little bit how you got involved in that business. Um, I, I got involved because I was asked to get involved. <laughs> That's always the easy answer. Uh, go figure. Actually, the the entire concept was started probably 28 years ago in Florida. A obstet obstetrician and his nurse manager wife um, got together and 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 basically wanted to put together a program for all of their postpartum patients. Um, it's no secret that after delivery, women uh, have a have weight to lose or choose to lose after a pregnancy, and a lot of women really struggled with that concept. And this obstetrician hired a nutritionist, um, I think a couple other uh, people in the nutritional field, and they came up basically after a little trial and error, they came up with a program that included an appetite suppressant, but then a uh, a a weight loss program uh, that morphed into a very successful venture within that OBG clinic. And then it morphed from there into a freestanding weight loss clinic because they were so successful with it. Oh. And that was really the start of Go Figure as that freestanding uh, clinic uh, that morphed out of the OB practice. And as far as I know, that clinic is still standing. Uh, one of their clients... Um, it was roughly 2003, one of the clients moved to Bozeman and decided to start a go-figure ah. here in Bozeman, and that's how it started. Ah. And, um, but and, they needed, obviously, a medical supervisor doctor. Yes, they needed a, a medical overseer, if you have it, or, or supervisor. And the main reason that they needed um, medical input is because uh, the mainstay of of appetite suppression is a medication called fendometrazine, which has been on the market since 1973. Um, and it's a, it is a controlled substance. It's called a, uh, a three class controlled substance. Uh, it's a very effective medication. Uh, and, um, people report that their appetite suppression is quite remarkable. What's, on this, what's it called? Fenda, P-H-E-N-D-A, and then metrazine, M-E-T, a Z I N E, and it's a, as I said, a powerful appetite suppressant. Um, what happens in our program, <laughs> and the the impetus of our program, truly is at the end of the day trying to teach people how to eat properly. Uh, that's that is the end point of what we're trying to do. Uh, we all know that for successful and sustained weight loss. It takes behavior change. Even the bariatric surgeons um, tell us that even though they've had a successful bypass surgery, for example, for weight loss, if those patients don't change their behavior, uh, all of the good that that bypass operation provided uh, may be lost if the patient ultimately, in the long term, does not change their behavior. I agree. So our goal is to come up with a mechanism by which um, people 
start to lose weight on our program. And our end point is, again, trying to change their behavior, extinguish the bad habits, and supplace those with healthy new habits in a sustainable fashion. The weight loss program itself is a mathematical model. That is, uh, we know how much people are going to lose weight over a period of time. About four or five years ago, we took about 40 women in our practice, and we were able to ascertain that they, um, they stayed well within the parameters or the caloric parameters of the program. And then we looked at their weight loss over time. Again, we knew that they weren't cheating and eating more than what our program was designed for. Yeah. And surprisingly to all of us is that after the first week, uh, the first week usually is an average of six-pound weight loss. Yeah, but wow. Yeah, but half that's water. And so from week two forward, the average weight loss for everyone was two and a half pounds per week. Okay. Uh, maybe one week was one, one week was four, but the average was two and a half pounds per week. Yeah. That was such a predictable mathematical model. I could take someone that was reaching their ideal weight, do the reverse math. I could get out a calendar and show her or him when they started the program within a few days because that mathematical model is so predictable. Say, say in this another way, somebody that needs to lose 80 pounds or wants to get their ideal weight, which is a loss of 80 pounds, is going to be with us twice as long as somebody that needs to lose 40 pounds, okay. as long as they stay within the caloric parameters of our program. Mm -hmm. The other arm of, of our weight loss program that is so successful for people, we actually see people back every week. Once they sign up, um, they go through a, an hour and a half nutritional boot camp where we teach them about basic nutrition, portion size, how to read labels, interpret labels on food cans. Mm -hmm. We don't use any special shakes or supplements. We send people right back to the grocery store, uh -huh. but we teach them how to shop, basically. Yeah. And, um, and then right from the beginning, um, after the nutritional boot camp and people start the program, um, and week two, three, four come along, if they start right within the parameters of the program, they start to lose weight. Um, we want people comfortable during that time. So we do use an appetite suppressant so that they're not thinking about being hungry all the time. Right. And as I mentioned, the arm that seems to be so successful is that we see these people back every week, some cases because of the commute they may have to make from Ennis or, or Dylan, for example. Um, maybe it would be every two weeks after the first month just for convenience. But that idea of coming back every week, you get checked in, you see the, uh, our counseling staff, uh, you get checked in, you get reweighed. So it's an opportunity for us to reteach people, keep them engaged in the process, and obviously by jumping on that scale every week, hold them accountable. Sure. And uh, the, the, that part of the program where there's the coaching effect, if you'll have it. Yeah, I was going to say, that feels like uh, it's coaching. It is coaching. And that is what most people need. They're not asking for, give me, guide, give me a book to read and let me figure it out. Right. For many people, it is, I need a place where somebody...
coach that helps me is like my is my my friend in my corner of the fight. No, that's exactly in the right. Ring, you know, the the it's in between the rounds, and I I need somebody who gives me the latest hints and what I need to pay attention to, and then I feel recharged to go home and do it again. That's exactly what people tell me. Yeah, that's, you've summed it up perfectly. And it's as a even the naysayers, even the clients that come in. Oh, I don't want to come in every week. Well. You don't have a choice. We people don't get their medication or a prescription for their medication unless they come in every week. Right. That's a carrot and stick paradigm. Uh, even the naysayers, after time, actually learn to enjoy that part of the program. Um, tremendous support, like you said, keep you in the fight, yeah. uh, keep you engaged in the process. Right. And one of the things that we've learned, um, and I think the medical community at large has learned is that weight loss over time is a lot like managing hypertension over time or diabetes over time. It's a chronic disorder. And uh, success is not necessarily a straight line. Uh, It takes time. It takes commitment. Sometimes life gets in the way. People fall back from the program and restart. That's not uncommon. Um, But we're in it for the long haul. Again, we're trying to change behavior. Yeah, interesting. It's um, the battles. I think when you come in, I, I, I want to understand a little bit what range of people do you have come to the uh, Go Figure Weight Loss Center if the people who are, they just cannot lose that last 10 pounds or they just, they've tried, the obese people, mm-hmm. the oh, definitely overweight people, which you mentioned not only being a chronic problem, the the ongoing problems, the knee, the ankle joints, the hip joints from the extra weight it has to carry. And I would think for for men, maybe even more than for women, the hips can really grow a brunt. Women have tendency to be a little heavier on the hip. And then you have the knee and the ankles. But if you gain all that extra weight in your belly and your shoulders, upper body, that's a lot of weight on your lower back for men. And for women, is that uh, kind of fair what I'm saying over here? That is for men, more hip, knee. Front. You know, I, I, I think that's a simplification. Um, I like simple. I know you do. <laughs> but in, in my experience, um, for example, back pain uh, can be irrelevant of the patient size. Through uh, my years in emergency medicine, I've taken care of and managed back pain in small people, big people, obese people, skinny people. Interesting. Yeah, it actually, uh, but of course, the common sense tells you that those joints in the low back were designed to carry X amount of weight. And yes. if, you've, if you've increased that load by 50 pounds, and if you have a tendency toward low back pain, you're going to exacerbate it with that extra weight. Right. Uh, that's certainly true, yeah. but I have seen lots of large people with no back pain as well. So it's okay. not a one-to-one correlation. Uh, what's interesting, however, is that uh, I listened to a lecture from a very prominent bariatric surgeon about three years ago at a conference I attended back in Portland. And this bariatric surgeon uh, developed a, a very, very busy um, service in the University of Tallahassee. Uh, for those who those people who don't know what bariatric surgery is, uh, I didn't know what it meant when I first read it. Um, it's basically, these are the surgeons that go in and do the special bypass surgery um, in the gut 
for uh, very heavy people that any medical management has failed. So these people go in for a, a special operation um, that essentially, um, to make it very, very simple, makes the stomach smaller if you'll have it. And um, and it's, it is a weight loss, effective weight loss technique. Um, but he t- told the audience at this uh, seminar that I was at that his, his, his heavy people that are interviewed prior to surgery, 100% of those patients have one or all three of the following. Arthritis is one of the number one side effects from obesity. Gastroesophageal reflux, commonly called GERD. And then, and then lastly, um, sleep apnea. Ah. So all three of these conditions, these heavy people have one or all three of, oh. of these conditions. Mm. And again, these are conditions that are simply related to weight. So um, like I said, arthritis, not necessarily um, uh, back pain, but certainly weight-bearing joints like the knee, ankles, hip. Of course, they're yeah. affected uh-huh. by the weight. And when people lose the weight, guess what? Some of these symptoms certainly disappear. That's wonderful. Yep. I mean, it's it's wonderful. I, I it, It's becoming more and more popular. Mm-hmm. Of course, we also now hear about the sleeve. Right. So where they don't use the pocket, but they kind of attach the upper part of the esophagus pretty much straight down to the small intestine, right? Or to the duodenum? I Yeah, I'm not an expert in surgery no, but of that. Anyway, but, yeah. so I, we do see that people are trying different things. And obviously, when you think about it, if they have to go in and do that kind of surgery, that is forever. You cannot really reverse that. It depends on the procedure, of course. And again, I'm not an expert sure, in Sure, but it would be so much easier, in my opinion, to come to go figure and to work on something where you say, okay, with the right coaching, with the right suggestions and shopping list, direction and direction and the right medication in this case, you can have great and lasting success. Looking at our program from, um, from 2000 feet up bird's eye view, we've been very successful. And of course we have our failures as well. I mean, we're dealing with the failures. The failures that uh, that I see are people that come to our program lose a significant portion of weight. Um, they do well on the program, and then life gets in the way. I see. Uh, and the the commonest word that said that is said to me in this life gets in the way paradigm is stress. Oh, okay. Something stressful happens, maybe a major move, maybe a job loss, maybe yeah. a divorce, yeah. uh, maybe a death in the family. Uh-huh. And what do people do? One of the first things, not everyone, but there's a large group of people um, that drift drift back. They become to, emotional eaters. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. They they eat for comfort. Huh. Um, I had a I had a gentleman come through the practice about. About a year ago, he traveled to San Francisco for his work, and so he was in airports a lot. And this is him talking. He told me, you are teaching me not to respond to food triggers that have anything to do with appetite. Not respond not to food, respond right. to not food, food triggers, triggers that have nothing to do with appetite. 
emotional eating, right. stressful eating. Yeah. And this is a big deal for some people. This is about the behavioral change. Uh, this, is, this is what basically takes people off course. And over the last six months, we've started a new part of our program where uh, I see everybody up. I see everybody at six-month intervals after they start the program. And so I've seen quite a few more of the, our, our long-term clients. Sure. And it's actually, think of it as a bell-shaped curve. In the middle of that bell-shaped curve is a group of people. Sure. That's exactly what happens to them. They have successful weight loss. Um, life gets in the way. Stress, more stress. They revert back to that eating pattern. And some people gain part of, or all of their weight back. Yeah. Well, then we have this big group of people we call restart. <laughs> yeah. They come back and we start all over again. Uh, and that fits into this paradigm that this is a this is a long-term health problem and go figure is there for the long term for these people. Now we do have a, a large group of people that come through our program, they reach their ideal weight, they're happy, they say hasta baby and we never see them again. And Bozeman is small enough of a community. If that group of people wasn't doing well, we would know about it. Right. And it's actually quite the opposite. Is it the second time around for people who follow the wagon? Let's call it this way. Yeah. Is second time around easier for them because they I think already it is. kind of, yeah. Yeah, I think it is. They know the program. They know what we're doing. They just need the guidance again. Yep. They need the, the regular visits. Right. And everything. Now, yep. if you say you see them once every six months. So all the other times they're with other people. With the, they, with they the, really only see you at the beginning and after I six do the months? Yeah, I do the medical screening. Yes. I see them for the first interview, go over the program. I actually have a video okay. that I have them watch on my iPad in the office. Yeah. And I explain the medical didactic work in the program. And then we have counselors that see them every week thereafter. And, uh, and obviously if something comes up, which it rarely does, if something comes up, there's a problem, there's a blood pressure issue or a medication reaction issue, any number of things like that, the girls that do the counseling can find me anytime, and we just do a little consult over the phone. But that's rare. So when you say in the first week, mm -hmm. people see an average of about six pounds Correct. to lose. After that, the average is about two and a half pounds a week. The... Um, when do you start seeing usually that people are starting to not reach those goals? Is that after three months? Is that after two months that all of a sudden? Variable. 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 Right. Mm -hmm. Now, when you say you do the uh, original interview, talk, show them the video, etc., uh, do you also do a, a extensive blood test here? Because yeah. I know we're going to talk about hormones, and I know right. hormones can have a lot to do with this, but do you do an extensive blood work on the hormones extensive and thyroid is, and stuff? Uh, extensive is a, a big word. Uh, we just do a, a, a blood count, okay. a common CBC. Yeah. We do a chem panel, again, very common, including uh, a lipid panel. What's pan a chem panel? Uh, electrolytes, sodium, oh, yeah. potassium, sure. BUN, creatinine, yeah. uh, Again, um, very common entity. But we also include lipids, uh, cholesterol, triglycerides, HDL, LDL. Yeah. Um, a whole new topic by itself. <clears throat> and then, awesome. and then um, what I've included is something called a T3, which is the, it's abbreviation. It's a, that's an abbreviation for the bioactive uh, thyroid hormone in the body. 
And I don't ask me what that means because it's a long word that looks like a dinosaur word. Yeah, it does. It does. <laughs> don't ask me to yeah. repeat it. Uh, but it is the bioactive component or the bioactive hormone in the body uh, from the thyroid. So I include that, uh, and I'll explain that in our next segment, why I do include that. So that's our blood work. We do an EKG when they come in. And, of course, vital signs, blood pressure. Um, we have a section for where the patient fills out a complete history uh, for us. Um, and then once that's completed, uh, they, that's their initial interface with Go Figure. I'll see them and follow up before they start their medication in my office at Aesthetic Medicine. And it's simply a interview, medical screening exam. Um, again, using the bell-shaped curve again, probably 90% of our clients uh, are from the ages of 28 through 60, and most people are healthy. Uh, so the screening process in that situation is uh, minimal. Yeah. Um, uh, we're not dealing with like in an internal medicine office, really sick people. We're dealing with healthy people that want to lose weight. Mm -hmm. All right. Stay tuned. We will be right back. We started talking about go figure medicine. We also want to talk about the bioidentical hormone. And there's actually some interesting uh, segues into the bioidentical hormones. But what is really interesting is how does a medical doctor who has been involved in in emergency medicine for 39 years, all of a sudden decide to make the transition to something called aesthetic medicine and hormone therapy, Dr. Bass? The simple answer is... There must be, there must be either a I, mental... I, <laughs> I, could, I, I could not do emergency medicine much longer than 39 years. I and I knew that there was going to be an endpoint that works too grueling to stay in it for that period of time any longer than that. So about seven years ago, eight years ago now, my wife and I decided that we wanted to look into doing a business that would offer me a segue uh, out of emergency medicine um, as I came closer to retirement from that field. And um, we basically moved up here from Southern California uh, in the early 2000, roughly 2004, and we were a around a lot of physicians down in Southern California <laughs> that had very success, successful practices in aesthetic medicine, using Botox, using dermal fillers, um, laser work for acne, permanent hair removal. We thought that would be a great segue for both of us, and uh, we started the business together roughly eight years ago. Yeah. Uh, we've been at the same address for eight years. Uh -huh. um, we've had a great time with that a small practice. My wife is the office manager. She's there at least a day a week uh, when she's not at Deaconess Hospital working in the radiation therapy department. Uh, we have a full-time esthetician. That esthetician does uh, all of the facial work, uh, clinical peels, dermabrasion, uh, oxygen facial treatments, um, some brow waxing, um, and permanent hair removal and some laser work for acne and skin lesions. I do all the Botox, all the dermal fillers, and whatever cosmetic uh, complex procedures need to be done. We do not do surgery. I qualify this as a light cosmetic spa. Yeah. And I incorporated 
about the same time, I incorporated uh, all of my Go Figure clients to come through aesthetic medicine, which wow. made it very um, convenient for us. So I actually see all of the first-time Go Figure clients when I do the initial screening or if there's a follow-up for, for them, I do it in my office at oh. Aesthetic Medicine. And Aesthetic Medicine and Go Figure are about four blocks apart, yes. so very close by. Yeah, yeah. So the transition that you talked about was um, I, I did not see retirement as uh, golf or fly fishing full-time. I saw it as a transition into something different. Uh, reinvent myself, if you'll have it. And yeah. aesthetic medicine has been a great vehicle for that. And then, of course, I, soon we'll be talking about the next topic. Um, I've opened my aesthetic practice up to bioidentical hormone replacement. Mm -hmm. Which I think that from what I have read about uh, uh, bioidentical hormones uh, in, the, in, the, in the group of the weight loss and understanding weight gain, weight loss, stresses, the adrenal uh, gland, the thyroid, pituitary, and then see all the hormones that are being made by the pituitary gland, you realize indeed that is a good, there must be a connection. So I think it's very interesting that you decided to specialize in that. Well, it is interesting. And actually the story of people ask me all the time, how did you get involved with bioidentical hormone? And the answer was actually quite simple. It was driven by um, my clients and go figure. About two years ago, it was November of 2015. Um, we have a billings office as well. Yeah. I was at my billings office um, and we were quite busy. Um, and I had spent the night uh, at, the, at the Hilton right next door to our clinic. And I saw several people in the afternoon. It was a Wednesday afternoon, which then segued to the next morning. I saw several clients the next morning. Pardon me. And there were three ladies that came through that um, I interviewed uh, toward the end of their program. They had all were close to their ideal weight. And these three ladies were postmenopausal. Mm -hmm. They didn't know each other. These were three separate women. But there was something definitely different about these women when compared to other women in my practice, the weight loss practice, that were postmenopausal. These women looked vibrant. It was summertime. They were tan. One was playing tennis that day. But there was a vibrance about them that was so different from anybody else in the practice. And I asked each and every one of them, you know, ma'am, what are you doing differently? These don't look like my other clients here. And to the person, their response was, bioidentical hormone replacement, doctor. <laughs> and I thought, hmm, maybe I ought to find out about this stuff. Yeah. And so that was really my impetus to go out. I'd heard about it. I knew something about it, but it's challenging, even as a physician, when you don't know about a hot topic like that, that yeah. is becoming more and more popular. So I took it upon myself over the next 12 months to educate myself. Uh, I spent a lot of time on the internet doing some self-educating, and then uh, I knew I had to go to the next level and get some postgraduate training. And I called a couple of physicians in Salt Lake City who did bioidentical hormones. And one actually invited me into his practice to uh, kind of follow him around seeing bioidentical patients in his practice. But before I did that, he says, you have to take the best course that's available. And he told me the details about the course. Uh, the man that teaches this course is a physician from Southern California. His name is Neil Rosier. 
He's an MD. Uh, 20 plus years ago, he too became uh, essentially consumed by this um, new medical, um, this new medical program that was vastly or fastly developing here in the United States, and that's bioidentical hormone replacement. He was so consumed by it, he basically became the expert. And he teaches three segments, um, and he teaches not only here in the United States, but he teaches internationally because he's so popular. And he is, I think, touted as the one of the best experts in bioidentical hormone replacement, but he also has the best course for physicians that want to learn about this. Yeah. I actually watched a little bit on uh, one of his courses. Right. You, you recommend I, yeah, right. go on YouTube and uh -huh. uh, uh, put his name in. His name is Neil, N-E-A-L, and then Rozier is R-O-U-Z-I-E-R, Neil Rozier, um, MD, medical doctor. And then look on YouTube, and you can find all kinds of short interviews and long classes. I think the long one right. is two hours or something. Right. Right. So you can really sit down and get, get very technical, mm -hmm. but you know, you can always pause it and just right. read it and, and right. read what it says. But very interesting. Yep. Yes. So um, I found out at that time when the next course was, that was January of 2016. I attended that course. Yeah. Uh, I've never been to anything quite like this. He limits his course to 100 participants, 100 providers, uh, nurse practitioners, physicians, other providers. Um, and the classes started on a Thursday evening uh, with 100 people. By Sunday afternoon, those same 100 people were still sitting glued to the front of, of the lectern with him giving his course. Uh, nobody left. He was so fascinating. Uh, he gave so much information. Uh, and that was course one. I just completed four weeks ago course two, ah. another four-day course. Uh, phenomenal learning experience. And all of his teachings are what we call evidence-based medicine. Mm -hmm. This means that any assertions that are made by Dr. Rozier, or for that matter, should be made by anyone uh, in the medical field, is backed up by well-controlled clinical trials, placebo-controlled trials. So all the insertions about hormones A, B, C, D, all the assertions that he makes or teaches is backed up by a large bibliography on uh, cutting-edge research. So it's what they call evidence-based. If, for example, make this simple, is drug A better for uh, you know forty-year-old men for a certain condition, or is B better? And so, an evidence-based investigation. You'd take two thousand people that we're getting drug A, but the physician doesn't know he's giving it, nor does the patient. I see. Uh -huh. Same with right. drug right. B. This is this is called a double-blind study. Yeah. So um, drug B, the physician do doesn't know, or the, giver, the caregiver doesn't know he's giving that drug, nor does the patient know that that patient's getting the drug. So one of the two are getting placebo, and the other's getting the actual drug. Wow. After two years, you do an outcome study. Does the group in A do better than the group in B? And you look at the data, and you make your decisions based upon the evidence. Yeah. That's evidence-based medicine. Mm -hmm. Oh, by the way, um, uh, do you know what a double-blind study is? 
I'm sure there is a different answer than what I have a double blind. No. Two orthopedists trying to read an EKG. <laughs> so the course was phenomenal. It's all evidence-based. I came home and decided to focus um, my hormone replacement practice on basically three, three or four groups of people. One was postmenopausal women. Two was men who were low in testosterone. This is usually over the age of 50. Uh, in both of those groups, I paid close attention to thyroid function. So I managed thyroid function as well. And then I've got a large following of women that are still menstruating, maybe in their mid-30s, that have significant debilitating PMS symptoms around the time of their menstrual period. That's my fourth group. And I've pretty much limited my practice to that at this point. Wow, well, that's a big group. It can be. Yeah. Now, um, I have seen blood work for men in mm. their early 40s. Mm -hmm. Very low testosterone. Mm -hmm. Some of them are very athletic, mm -hmm. but still very low testosterone. So you probably are going to find that people are going to come to you younger than 50. They can. And keep in mind, um, lab tests are just that. They're a lab test. And for example, testosterone, it can fluctuate throughout the day. And we use blood tests. We don't use saliva. We just do blood tests. So you've got a level, for example, of testosterone or even thyroid, for example. The T3 is what we measure in thyroid. Yes. Just because you have a low value, you can't say that person's clinically low on that hormone until you talk to the patient. Mm -hmm. I've seen lots of men um, that have, as a lab test, maybe the first one, low testosterone, but they have no symptoms. So, Correct. Yes, so the, the lab test is only a confirmatory uh, part of what the patient is doing. It's not a one-to-one it, -one correlation. Uh, but if you've got a patient with symptoms of low testosterone, and they do have a clinical value that's low, then that's significant. And you can use that as a guideline as you start to treat the patient, and you can follow his testosterone levels as to reach this certain endpoint. Fascinating topic. Everybody, everybody who's listening to the show should understand more about it. It's not a topic to be afraid of. It is a topic that we're all dealing with. Everybody has hormones. And uh, so it is interesting that we manage the hormones. It's not about raising one hormone to the highest we can go. There are optimal levels. And as I was looking at uh, Dr. Neil Rozier uh, videos, he one of the things he is talking constantly about is optimizing hormone levels. Optimizing hormone levels. And so, what does he mean by that? Um, well, basically, optimi optimization refers to. Um, having hormone levels as if you were 35. In other words, uh, between the ages of 25 and 35, um, the youthful years, if you'll have it, our hormone levels um, are optimized. It's only when we get older that they tend to trail off. So optimization is bringing back a thyroid level, for example, back to what it was when a person was 35. When the laboratory does a range for you, 
for example, the thyroid hormone, it's reported based upon your age. That's an average for your age. Well, obviously, that number is going to be lower than the average for a group of 35-year-olds. Sure. So optimization means bringing the hormone level back to what it was when you were 30 to 35. Yeah. That's the optimization. I see. And then, uh, so let's say somebody comes in at the age of uh, 70 mm -hmm. and says, you know, it's not, and, and, and this is an interesting thing because as we talk about this, many men think, oh, it has to do with erectile dysfunction, it has to do with libido, it has to do with loss of muscle mass. Uh, women may think it has to do with vaginal dryness, with uh, hot flashes, with uh, weight gain, dry skin, all the things that happen when they go through menopause or postmenopause. But there is so much more involved that people will not think about, even the listeners. Tell us some of these benefits that hormones, the right, correct balance of hormones sure. can have. Let's, uh, if I can digress, let's go back to this um, a story that I told you last week. Yeah. Um, and a lot of my customers or clients, pardon me, uh, really like the story because it puts things in focus. Yes. It's, it's all about the evolutionary scale um, and how we developed as a species. For the last, I, I, I'm, I, I'm sure I don't have the correct years exactly here, but I think for the last 75,000 years, we've certainly evolved as a species. If you were a woman or a man living in the United States 500 years ago, your average lifespan was probably no more than 45 years of age. And if you went back a thousand years, it might even be younger than that. Yeah. So for 75,000 years as a species, we've evolved with a lifespan of approximately 40 to 45 years. If you went back 40,000 years ago and just handpicked a, a caveman off the street back then and shaved him and got him all cleaned up and put a pair of clothes on him, or uh, some clothes on him. I think Geico has done that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but he probably would not look a whole lot different than what we look like now because our skeletal muscles, uh, our facial features, are, the way we're built, this has evolved many, many, many thousands of years ago um, to make us the successful hunter-gatherers that we always have been. Mm -hmm. But what's happened in the last the last 70 years, we've done something that's never been done before in our evolutionary history. We've elongated life from an average lifespan of 45 years to approximately just a bit over 70 years as our lifespan. Yeah. And 500 years ago, you didn't need to talk about hormone replacement because you were dead. Correct. You were dead. Yes. Uh, certainly, people grew older than that, but... Uh, on the whole, people had an average lifespan of roughly 45 years. Yeah. So with that in mind, I'll, uh, I hear the music playing. I'll uh, step back just for a bit and we'll reintroduce re, re, uh, this conversation when we come back. You bet. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. But tell us more about the story. That is uh, well, really interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. And the story um, by review is that for 70,000 years, we've evolved as a species, but it's only been in the last 70 years through medical technology, medical advancements, antibiotics, um, more medical knowledge that we've actually advanced our 
typical lifespan to just a little over 70. And through the evolutionary process, since for maybe 70,000 years, years prior, we had an average lifespan of, say, 43, 44. Um, once women met or, or came to menopause uh, because of a lifespan of only 45, oftentimes they were deceased before their ovaries basically quit working. Uh-huh. So, you know, a thousand years ago, you didn't need hormone replacement because, as we talked about, mm-hmm. people were dead. Yeah. <laughs> and so, of course, uh, some people live uh, longer than 45 years, but on the average, um, the average lifespan is about 45 years. Now, fast forward, when we're living on the average of just a little over 70 years old, some of the body parts did not evolve to produce hormones any longer than 45 years. And the best example of that um, is just looking at the population of women who reach roughly the age of 50, see average time when they go through menopause. And menopause is simply when the hormone-producing organ in their body, the ovaries, uh, begins to falter and essentially quits working. And I think everybody understands that concept that once you go through menopause, pardon me, you're not producing the same amount of female hormones, if you'll have it, than you, that you used to. And of course, women have, not all women, but many women have symptoms related to that withdrawal of bioactive hormones. In men, um, often, oftentimes called andropause, uh, men over the age of 50, their testosterone production starts to fall off. Again, from an evolutionary standpoint, um, the testes, the adrenal gland, wasn't designed to keep producing the same amount of level um, through the sixth, seventh, and eighth decade of life. Right. So in men, testosterone falls off. In both groups, for the same reasoning, the active hormone produced by the thyroid and many people starts to drop off as well. Right. And so, um, for many years, um, many decades actually, um, people had to suffer through these conditions without much in the way of relief. And just over the last, I would say, 25 years, the pharmaceutical industry has advanced to the point where we can actually, in the laboratory, take the parent compound for these sexual hormones, the progesterone, the estrogen, the testosterone, <clears throat> we can take the parent compound of those three hormones. And here's the trick question. I think you know the answer. What is the, what is the parent compound of all three of those hormones? I'm a- asking our host. The parent compound? Of testosterone, progesterone, and estrogen. What's the parent compound? Well, the, comp- uh, the hormone, you mean? Yeah. Uh, pregnenolone? No, the parent compound is cholesterol. Oh, cholesterol. Duh. <laughs> of course, every, because right, yeah, pregnenolone right. is the first hormone right. that is made from cholesterol. Correct. And then everything uh, goes out of there. Okay. Yes. So, for example, in a woman's body, when she is um, she's 32 years of age, um, youthful, menstruating regularly, uh, when the estrogen level starts to drop off, the 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 human brain senses that and sends a signal called follicle-stimulating hormone, sends a signal to the ovaries to make some more estrogen. Right. So the body basically 
grabs its own cholesterol. It's your own cholesterol in your body where the ovaries then take this cholesterol molecule, and I'm kind of making this up for the explanation purposes, but adds a hydrogen here and a nitrogen there, and voila, more estrogen is produced. Okay. It's a feedback system. Uh, so testosterone in the men, testosterone in women, and by the way, women produce roughly a 10% level of testosterone that men do. Yeah. So all three of those hormones are produced by the in men, the testes, and women, the ovaries, to some extent the adrenal glands, are produced uh, on an as-needed basis. Yes. Once a woman goes through menopause, that production, of course, drops way down. In men, as they get older, oftentimes they're not producing as near the amount of testosterone that they used to. And research tells us it's probably more related to the brain signal going to the gonad, telling the testicles to make more testosterone. Yes. So it's it's centrally, the defects in, in, in the research seems to be centrally located in that brain signal that goes to tell the testes to make more testosterone. Yes. So that's kind of the feedback mechanism. And people ask me, well, how did bioidentical hormones come about in the first place? And what I tell all my clients, it's a story that is well known in medical literature. Um, Late 70s, early 80s, uh, postmenopausal women began to be treated postmenopausally with two medications that were hormone replacements. And the first medication is Premarin, and the second medication is Provera. Mm -hmm. Provera is the progesterone component, and the estrogen was the Premarin. Um, FDA looked at these drugs, did their usual study, uh, deemed them safe after 10 years of study, and they went out on the market, I think, about you know late 70s, early 80s. Family physicians, OBGYN doctors, internal medicine doctors began to notice in their clients uh, or sense an uptick in breast cancer, an uptick in heart disease, strokes, blood clots, uh, but they had no proof that it was these hormones that were causing the problem. Um, that was the initiation of one of the largest studies ever done on women called the Women's Health Initiative. And what they did, they studied roughly 28,000 women uh, between here and the UK that were on these medications. And they studied them for about 10 years. In 2002 was the first paper that was produced, I believe in the New England Journal, the first paper that was produced, and then another one in 2004 uh, in the same journal. They concluded that clearly it was the Provera arm of these two hormones that was causing most of the pro problem. Interesting. Yeah, it was the Provera, not so much as the Premarin arm. Now, what a lot of the lay public didn't realize is that Premarin and Provera were derivatives of an estrogen and pro progesterone product from the urine of a pregnant mare. So was the Provera? It, it was also. But the the, uh, the Provera, the other name is Progestin. Progestin, exactly. T-I-N at the end. Right. Which is uh, for most women, number one, when you walk in the doctor's office, most women are already intimidated by the whole environment and right. they're a little uncomfortable. And then when you hear about progesterone, but you're sitting in an office and you hear a doctor say, well, we're going to help you with your progestins and so then you think, I think he said progesterone, and you're not going to question it. Right. And so uh, tens of thousands of women have been 
involved in this and decided to go the route, but not realizing the potential side effects right. of progesterone. Well, I think the medical community at didn't that time know didn't either. know either. No. Yeah. And so it it was, um, in those many years, women were getting these hormones, but they weren't human hormones. They were horse hormones or the metabolites of, of those hormones. Premarin, pregnant mare, I think that's where the name Premarin actually came from. Uh, so with that said, um, once it was decided, once it was uh, realized that these hormones were potentially dangerous, uh, physicians pulled them, hopefully. <laughs> physicians pulled these hormones uh, out of their practice. And for a while, I think uh, it was, uh, well, we'll help you with your symptoms the best we can. We can give you maybe a little tranquilizer, an antidepressant, yeah, yeah, yeah. some Motrin sure. to help you out. So um, there was quite a knee-jerk reaction to, to these horse hormones, if you'll have it. And about the same time, uh, in medicine, oftentimes serendipity uh, uh, gives way to new discoveries, for sure. <clears throat> about the same time, the pharmaceutical industry was becoming far advanced. The technology had improved such that they could actually take this parent compound of cholesterol, which is commercially available, take this parent compound of cholesterol, and in the laboratory, they can actually make an estrogen molecule that atom by atom is identical to the human form of estrogen. Mm -hmm. That's where the word bioidentical hormone replacement comes from. It's yeah. biologically identical to human hormone. And that is estradiol in this one. Yeah, there in are this three case, forms of estrogen. Yeah, right? in, in, in this case, it is estradiol, which is a form of estrogen. Mm -hmm. Progesterone and testosterone likely can be um, produced in the laboratory as a bioidentical hormone. Uh -huh. the, the, current, the current practice is that compounding pharmacies, they compound the medications. The compounding pharmacies are the ones that basically uh, are responsible for the majority of these compounded substances that are the bioidentical human hormone. Uh -huh. So there's, there's the ideology of bioidentical hormone replacement. It, uh, it is really the new frontier in medicine to understand more of what makes the body tick and to uh, the research working with the, the healthy hormone levels of people in the 30 to 35 range and start helping. We just see when people, as people get older, we started seeing an increase in heart disease, strokes, different forms of hormone-related cancer. We see problems more with Alzheimer's, with weight problems. And uh, so the, the so-called diabetes, insulin problems, we see age-related diseases that when working with hormone replacement therapy done the correct way, you can actually reverse these age-related diseases and live a much higher quality of life as you get older, totally feeling rejuvenated in a healthy way. So it is not just like, oh, just I see too many men have come to me and say, well, I... I have a problem getting it up or keeping it up or having, you know, and, and they just say, yeah, I don't like the woman no more and whatever. So they come in and they talk about it and they 
think they guaranteed it is testosterone, which is not all it could be, but it may not be the case only. There may be other reasons why uh, the libido isn't there, but we need to understand that hormones in general, the progesterone and testosterone are essential for bone health, for example, uh, in women specifically. Osteoporosis is directly related to a drop in progesterone and testosterone. For men, too low, too low an estradiol mm -hmm. can cause bone fractures and osteoporosis, and uh, too high an estradiol can cause prostate cancer, especially when it is imbalanced with progesterone. So this whole hormone thing is absolutely uh, fascinating, and I I tell you that. Um, as we, as we go through the show, and I, I feel we're probably going to do more shows about this because this is an ongoing research and this is also things that are need to be repeated sometimes because you don't learn it all in one in one hearing. you got to hear it again and mm. then... And again. So, and again, <laughs> and again, and again. So we have a call on hold for you, uh, Dr. Buzz. Uh, good morning, caller. What is your name, please? How can we help you? Yeah, hey, good morning, guys. It's Kevin. Hey, Kevin. Hey, Jacobus. Hey, I got a question for the two of you. Um, so I hear you hear all the time now about this thing called Super Beats, the product out there. I don't know. If yeah, you know nitric right oxide uh, for nitric right. oxide production. Right, and I guess you know it is good for blood flow. They say, and that's that's maybe I don't know if that's the only characteristic for it. But one, I wanted to know your opinion on it, and two, is it beneficial to someone who doesn't really need blood flow, but just uh, as an overall wellness? You know, for someone like myself in my mid forties. Yeah. Any thoughts on that? Uh, I have none. <laughs> <laughs> Zip. <laughs> well, let, let me ask you, Dr. Buzz, tell me about nitric oxide. I don't, I, 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 to be honest, I really don't know enough, nor have I studied enough to even give a cogent answer. Yeah. So I, I would have to beg, I'm sorry, I'm not going to try to fake it. Okay, uh, no, no, I appreciate that. Yeah, I've never studied it. Uh, as, if you've been listening to the show, I've been concentrating on the hormone aspect. So... Uh, I don't want to be silly and comment where I shouldn't comment, so I'll beg, uh, beg, beg out of that question. <laughs> well, it is it really the beets are extremely healthy for us. Uh, there are a lot of antioxidants and polyphenols, uh, polyphenols in the beets, but there's something about the workings, Kevin, that uh, helps the production of nitric oxide in the body that has been proven. So people who have high blood pressure, people with erectile dysfunction, women with low libido and who need more uh, stimulation in general, nitric oxide works its way as part of the ATP, adenosine triphosphate production in the body, and is involved in energy and sending energy and oxygen to the uh, to the extremities. So Now, I would imagine that's just generally good for everybody, not just necessarily someone who you know, has heart problems. Absolutely. Or, or has... It's good for everybody as a preventative. Okay. And part of it because of the tremendous amount of uh, antioxidants in there. Right. So it is. It's a wonderful food, and the super beets is indeed something that you hear advertised on the radio. But really, right, right. what and that's just a brand name, right? It uh, is a brand name, and right. I think that you should come uh, check it out in the store. We have different beet products, and one of them is by the company Flora, which is uh, just beet crystals. And you literally just take a tablespoon, put it in a glass, stir it in cold water, and then uh, just dissolves within. 20 seconds, 15 okay, seconds, okay, okay, and good. then you drink it, you know, you drink a glass of beet juice, and right. there is another one that we have that has uh, that has some black cherry extract in it, also an anti-inflammatory, so for people who want both the energy, the oxygenation, and the anti-inflammatory, uh, that's a very good tasting powder, it has a little bit of stevia in it as well, 
So those are options that you can try. But I tell you, Kevin, when it comes to heart health, uh, the people who have already uh, commented on me that within days, their blood pressure just comes down, do, drinking a couple of glasses a day. Uh, sure. That for a lot of people is already a great indication that something is working with uh, simply using beets. Okay, terrific. Okay, good knowledge. I'll probably be over there actually today. I got I to gotta do a couple of things and I'll say hello. All right. Thanks, All right, Kevin. Appreciate it. Bye-bye. Boy, fascinating stuff that you're telling us, Dr. Buzz. Um, this, this, so we were talking about the different uh, side effects that doctors used uh, from the synthetic hormones mm-hmm. that they've used for so long. Then the World Health Initiative study with over 72,000 women. 28,000. 20, I thought it was 72,000. You may have a different um, source than I. I thought it was 28,000. 27,000. Yeah, yeah, I'm just a little dyslexic. Yeah. yeah. 27, <laughs> 72. <laughs> yeah, 28,000. Yeah, so women participated for, I think, about 10 th- years. was a 10-year study, yeah. but they cut it off after about five because right, of so because many of, incidents. Right, right. You know, but and you say something about the doctors prescribing this and that. I have still heard till very recent that doctors are still prescribing the Premarin and the Provera because they say that whole study was bunk. Um they're right here, Bozeman. Yeah, uh, I'm not going to criticize. No, I understand. Uh, but I, I, just, I, stand, I, I stand by the teachings of uh, Dr. Rosier. Ah, I'm, go- I'm with all, you. All evidence-based. Yeah, perfect. So, yeah. so we'll talk. Uh, some of it is anecdotal, obviously, what doctors are saying over here. But uh, anyway, folks, we're going to take another break for the news. Uh, hopefully you stay with us the whole next hour because more about bioidentical hormones are coming your way. We will be right back. There is all of a sudden, with all the knowledge that everybody already has, this explosion of information that all of a sudden comes out that seems like as the dust is settling, mm-hmm. so to say, more and more medical doctors and physicians, or even naturopathic physicians, are getting into this field. They say, this is something that we really need to incorporate in our studies. Let me just tell you, just to support what you're saying, let me tell you just a little side story. The last course that I attended in Salt Lake with Dr. Rozier, um, he only allows 100 practitioners uh, or providers to come to his course. He limits yeah. it to 100. And I was sitting in a part of the room, the lecture room, for that four days. It's kind of interesting when you go to the first day of a lecture and you pick a chair and sit in it. Typically, you stay in that chair the whole four days. Uh, yeah. <laughs> And around me, sitting next to me, were two cardiac surgeons and three cardiologists oh. from different cities. Yeah. And I asked a couple of them. I said, man, I find this kind of odd. But then when I think about it, maybe not so. Uh, what is it you're getting out of this course as it applies to your profession? Right. And their answer was, common sense. We're finding out, just as Dr. Rosera is lecturing about, we're finding finding out more and more of the importance of adequate hormone levels, such as testosterone in men, such as estradiol in, in women. We're finding out how important adequate levels of these hormones and how it affects uh, cardiac health. Mm. Uh, and so, what they're doing, they're learning more and more about hormones as it applies to their profession, which is either cardiac surgery or cardiology, mm-hmm. and the importance of these hormones for people that live past the age of 55 or 60. Right. So, 
we are talking here about uh, the bioidentical hormones. Now, what I what I want to ask you to go back to those three ladies, what they told you, have you indeed seen that with you working now with women who have PMS in the 30s, 40s, 30s, mm-hmm. 40s, uh, severe PMS symptoms, but any PMS symptoms, I mean, mm-hmm. you, but many women don't even understand. They just think that they're, when they're not moody, that they don't have PMS symptoms. And I would say there are about 27, 28 different symptoms related to uh, the imbalance between estradiol and progesterone. And you have seen success already, subjective success, so to say, from the women you've been working with. Of course. Yeah, it's been very gratifying. Um, PMS, as we all know, are um, signs and symptoms that occur around a woman's menstrual period. Common PMS symptoms, headache, moodiness. Um, I had one woman tell me she had about one week a month, terrific road rage. (laughs) That was her way of uh, telling me that she had big mood swings. Mood swings, headache, irritability, uh, sometimes insomnia. It all has to do with the drop of progesterone, which is the normal part of the normal menstrual cycle that and monthly cycle that women certainly go through. Uh, and the brain is kind of a, uh, is kind of a, kind of a, um, what do I want to say? People can have the same change in hormone levels, but their brains respond differently. Not every woman that goes through these changes every month has severe menstrual or PMS symptoms, but a lot of women do. And it's, it has to do with the drop in progesterone. So my approach for these women is roughly five days before they start their period. Sometimes that's an estimate. About five days before they start their period, I put them on 200 milligrams of oral progesterone at night. And the reason why I give it orally is um, there's a there's a phenomenon called first pass through the liver. When you swallow any medication, such as Tylenol or an antibiotic, progesterone, it goes through the liver and is metabolized. Two of the metabolites from progesterone as it passes through the liver, um, one of the metabolites actually has a sleepy, sleepy effect on women. It acts as kind of a sedative. And uh, women will come back to me for the first time around my menstrual period. I'm sleeping eight hours a night. And that only started after she started taking the capsule of progesterone. But I start them five days before the period approximately continue throughout their cycle. So they're only taking the progesterone for about 10 days a month. And um, you see a, a great diminution in a lot of these women's symptoms just by that approach. Um, I've had several women that have had migraines all of their life during their menstrual period, irritability. Um, some women get immobilized uh, uh, by the PMS symptoms. Add the progesterone and uh, I've had great success with that. Very rewarding success, both for the client as well as myself. Now, the uh, leading up to the menstrual cycle, you give them oral. Do you give them transdermal after the when the cycle starts? No, I use only oral. And the oh, reason no, why is that? Because of the metabolites. Right. Yeah, you, yeah that's right. You mentioned yeah, the metabolites because they get this positive effect of of that one metabolite that you know creates sleepiness in women. Uh, especially postmenopausal women. When I put them on the oral form of the progesterone, um, I've had several women come back and tell me after they started the progesterone, 
this was the first time in five years that they'd get eight hours of sleep. And so the, the progesterone really works to cure the insomnia that's related to postmenopausal symptoms as well as the PMS symptoms. Yeah. The oral prep um, is uh, unreliable, actually. Um, it probably... The oral prep? What is Pardon oral me, prep? I'm sorry. Transdermal. <laughs> Transdermal is, 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 the least, is the least favorite amongst my teachings with Dr. Rosé to give the progesterone. Huh. Uh, orally is the number one uh, preferred. If people don't tolerate the oral... Is that a trochee? Is that what you're no, talking about? No, it's a capsule. A capsule. Just a huh. capsule at night. So is that a time release or what passes it through does the stomach come, acid? And... It does come in a time release uh, form and also comes in an immediate form as well. Uh, probably the majority of patients I see, we do the immediate form yeah. rather than the extended release. Yeah. Boy. <laughs> <laughs> My, uh, I have a little uh, antidotal story is that... Uh, my wife and I have been married for roughly 22 years. We now have a 13-year-old daughter. Prior her, prior to my daughter's, uh, my daughter being born 13 years ago, my wife never had a headache, mm-hmm. never, uh, and of course never had migraine headaches. Right. And then roughly two months or the second month after my daughter was born, yes. she had a migraine headache around her menstrual period that totally incapacitated her. And then it kept repeating month after month. And it, it got to the point where she always kept Imitrex, which is a common medication for migraine headaches. You have to take it right when the migraine headache starts. But if she didn't take it just at the right time or she was at work and she couldn't take it, that migraine headache could essentially evolve into uh, something that totally incapacitated her. She'd yeah. have to go home from work and lay down for the In next the dark 12 hours. room. Yeah, yeah exactly. And um, it was a struggle for us until um, until the first course with Dr. Rosé. I came home. I immediately called the pharmacy, and I put my wife on 200-milligram capsule. Um, Actually, in her case, she took the trochee. Um, She preferred the trochee because she doesn't like the—she's one of those people that doesn't like to swallow big capsules. Uh But she took the trochee, and uh, she's been on it for a year now. And she's had a couple migraine headaches, but none of them. As intense. As intense. It's mm-hmm. been markedly effective for her. Mm-hmm. And I've got, like I say, several women with PMS systems that are really doing well. Yeah. Yeah, it's true that uh, some women, after uh, they give birth, right. they start having problems. And other right. women don't have the problems right. anymore. It's, because of the, it, the I, I tell people it's like putting new programs in your computer. And then they say, right. please restart. Right. And then all of a sudden, all the programs are working. And right. it's like, if you're not... If you're not menstruating for 12 months or so, approximately, when you're mm-hmm. pregnant, then the body has a chance to reset itself. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, you come out of that, and it starts, and it can either go wrong or right, it can be right. uh, yep. great. Very variable response to the same stimulus. Mm-hmm. Do you also work with women with endometriosis, uh, PCOS, um, uh, fibroids? Well, I don't work with them. Uh, the, the, Specifically, because they usually probably go to OBGYN. No, yes, and no is okay. the answer. Okay, <laughs> I okay. do not deal directly with endometriosis. I know a lot about it because it oh, has to do with an imbalance of hormones. Well, that and I've I've seen uh, through my emergency room career so many women that have abdominal pain, periodic abdominal pain from endometriosis. It's a very difficult uh, topic. Uh, it's clearly in the purview of the OBGYN community. 
Um, I, I know about it just because of my association with patients in the emergency room, but I do not do, deal with it directly in my practice. Uh -huh. PCOS, I uh, actually do deal with in my practice. Um, I've had several women come through my clinic with some of the classic signs for polycystic ovarian disease. Uh -huh. um, syndrome. Yeah. Syndrome, and I have seen them. It makes weight loss very difficult. Yes. They gain weight. They oftentimes have uh, unwanted facial hair, yeah. acne. Uh, what's interesting about PCOS is that the disorder is not in the ovaries. Um, the disorder is in insulin production and uh, insulin viability. Very complex topic. Uh, it's one of those things, if you don't look for it, you're going to miss it. And so uh, there's certain blood tests that you can do. It's called the FSH-LH ratio. Um, you can do these blood tests. You also measure for insulin values in the bloodstream. Uh, these are the kind of diagnost diagnostic tests you do. But once you discover it, there are certain medications you can use, certain treatments you can use that will markedly affect their lives and, of course, will affect their ability to lose weight. Huh. And then the other uh, condition you mentioned— Fibroids? Yeah, uh, you on fibroids. No, yeah, that, 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 I've had lots of experience with that in my emergency career, but sure. I don't do that in my primary career here. Huh. My understanding is that is also caused by an imbalance in hormones. So I I'm don't know the answer to that. Okay. Again, it's it's yeah. it's above my pay grade. Okay, well, <laughs> if it's above your pay grade, I better shut my mouth now. <laughs> so, uh, this is uh, one of those uh, things that the new research shows. Hormones have a lot to do with it, and uh, Dr. Dr. Ronald Buss has become an expert in this town dealing with those specific issues who give him a chance to work with you and help you out, because that is one of the things you have indeed, as we just started talking, a part of this conversation, the symptoms that you have already seen with women, and how about men, men you've worked with, uh, how fast... Can men say, wow, I'm just feeling better? How fast does it go? You work usually. Well, of course, it, it depends on what the diagnosis is, obviously. Sure. Um, but the pattern that I see that uh, is quite common is um, men come in to see me over issues of fatigue. Um, certainly low libido is oftentimes um, part of that syndrome. Uh, oftentimes, a component of ED or erectile dysfunction is part of that paradigm as well. But mostly, uh, men come to me with complaints of fatigue, apathy, disinterest, if you'll have it, lack of energy, some weight gain. Mm -hmm. um, and the two things that I look for in men, uh, particularly men over the age of 50, is certainly a drop-off of the production of testosterone. That's number one. And uh, through, through my studies with Dr. Rosier, I've learned um, how important optimal thyroid levels are so important for, um, uh, for health. And the two together, low testosterone, low thyroid in men, plays a critical role in producing these symptoms. And I, I'm happy to say that every patient uh, with, well, I don't think with any exceptions, once we get their thyroid back up to optimal levels, once the testosterone begins to rise to a certain level, um, and both of these, um, both of these hormones, when given first given, I tell my clients that typically it's anywhere from six to eight weeks before the 
stores in the body begin to build, mm -hmm. and people actually have a clinical change at that time. Mm -hmm. Occasionally, I have seen patients, both men and women, who are really low on their th thyroid production. You add thyroid to their regimen, and within two weeks, if they're really low to begin with, can actually notice uh, a lot of these symptoms decrease in a two-week period of time. But I'd say probably um, eight weeks is when people, six to eight weeks, actually feel a change. Yeah. Then it, it's important at that time. Eight weeks is kind of my magic time to go back and recheck levels uh, on all of these hormones. Uh, in particular, thyroid, we check a level of a substance called T3, which is an abbreviation. Again, don't make me say the whole word. It's a Something like Tyrannosaurus. Yeah, 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 no. yeah, yeah. It's triiodothyronine. Yes. You did good. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. triiodothyronine. Those, those two eyes yes, right next right, to each other right. throws you off. That's, most people, that's a tongue twister. Like one one of my patients said, looks like a looks like a dinosaur name. Yeah. I thought that was pretty cute. Yeah. Um, but that's what I follow is the level of T3, uh, the T3. Specifically the free T3. Correct. Correct. Yes. Correct. And um, it's the free T3 that we follow. And there's actually a numerical value that I follow. Optimum levels hover right around between four and five. Okay. And if the patient is symptomatic, typical they're down in the low twos or mid twos. Yes. And so there is a hormone that with supplementation, we can actually follow the level. Yeah. And as the level, I want to talk about that. Okay, I, we'll come back. So talk interesting, about it. yeah, because yep. I definitely have some questions about that, and uh, we're going to be mm -hmm. right back with Doctor Bus. So I appreciate all of you listening. We just have a half hour left. Please uh, tell us uh, what we need to know about the thyroid. Well, in short, adequate thyroid levels or adequate amount of thyroid affects every organ system in the body. Thyroid is important for so many functions, um, uh, so many entities that uh, are, are responsive to the thyroid hormone in the body. Um, what's interesting is that there's four or five symptoms of people that have low thyroid that come to me, and it's remarkable to me how, um, how common the set of symptoms occurs in each and every patient that comes in to see me. Yeah. Classic symptoms of low thyroid. Now, we have to distinguish something here for a moment, um, typically endocrinologists or the field of endocrinology has dealt with true hypothyroidism where um, a patient clearly does not produce enough thyroid or has a diseased thyroid. Uh, for exa example, Hashimoto's disease, which is an autoimmune disease. Yeah. Um, that That's not my purview. What I'm trying to deal with with my patients is thyroid insufficiency inadequate levels um, or non-optimal levels of thyroid. And typically what I watch very closely is a substance called the T3, which yeah. we talked about last half hour. And what's interesting about this, if people come in with these classic symptoms of low thyroid, such as hair loss, chronic fatigue is probably the most common uh, pre presenting symptom. Uh, they come in with cold intolerance. In other words, they're cold all the time despite having the temperature warm for everyone else. Mm -hmm. um, apathy. Apathy, apathy yes. Anxiety, depression, yeah. tingling hands and feet. I hear lots that all of, the time. Lots of symptoms. Yes. And sure enough, you go to measure their T3, and predictably, uh, 
most of my patients come in between roughly 2 and 2.5, 2.7 as a numerical value of the T3 in the bloodstream, the free T3. Optimal levels are between 4 and 5. What's interesting about this uh, type of treatment with replacing their thyroid um, is there's a appears to be a one-to-one correlation between how the patient feels after they start, they start thyroid supplementation and an actual numerical value. Oftentimes, patients will come in with these symptoms, have a T3 around 2.5 or 2.4, and you start treating them. My favorite treatment is a product called NatureThroid, which is about 14% T3 in, the, in that product. Uh, NatureThroid has been on the market for many, many years. Uh, it's available commercially uh, at most pharmacies. It's a prescription medication. I start patients on roughly one grain per day, and I increase that until I see their T3s start to rise. What's uh, fascinating to me as people begin to approach that four level uh, as a patient mindset, it was like a light bulb coming on. Uh. All of her symptoms just simply dissipated. She had energy more than she's had in years, And this is a very, very common story for these patients that start the thyroid supplementation. They feel so much better once you get their levels up to around four, between four and five. Wow. If you would measure uh, a 20-year-old's T3 or a 22-year-old that has all this energy and feels great, is thin, active, uh, more than likely their T3s would be close to that four level. As they get older, the thyroid itself either waxes and wanes as far as productions, or at the cellular level, the thyroid becomes less effective at the cellular level. And therefore, adding the T3 back into the system and bringing it back to levels that are commensurate with a four to five numerical value, you see a big change in patients. So, boy, that brings up a lot of questions. Uh, first of all, the 14, 14 14% mm-hmm. of T3 is in the nature thyroid. It's 14%. 14 percent of that product is pure t3 and how much is t4 i believe that must be the rest or is there no no there's some inert substances in that as well and t4 which is of course is the storage unit for t3 yes uh, i think the t4 is a little bit higher in the um in the nature throat i don't by memory don't have an exact that's okay i i i i i can I run a few things by you about things that I've just learned over the years? Of course. And I may be totally off. Um, I'll tell you if you are. <laughs> I know I know you will. <laughs> uh, folks, the thyroid is, is located in your throat. So some people ask, well, you know where your thyroid is? And they say, uh, um, so they don't know. It's in your throat. Now it's, above, thi- it's on top of your throat. On top of the throat. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's just on top. Of, well, for of, men, it's kind of behind the Adam's yeah, apple. Yeah, right. and it's actually, it's it, normally it's a very, very thin gland, and it, it has a shape of a butterfly. Butterfly, right? yeah. And uh, it's very hard, if almost impossible in a normal thyroid, to palpate it. Okay. But it sits, and it's, it's just subcutaneous, right underneath the skin. Now, the thyroid obviously needs to be nourished, needs to be fed in order to produce right my understanding is that it produces t4 yes and then the t4 converts into t3 active form which is t3 right so i understand what you're saying that the t3 level needs to be measured and we want to make sure that the t3 is right now 
there are two possible reasons I understand that the thyroid is not producing enough T4. There is one thing about the conversion factor. You know, maybe there is not enough conversion factor going on, but we got to look also at the T4 because why would there not be enough T4 production? That could be number one, because the thyroid is not getting enough nutrients or number two, the autoimmune disorder, either Graves or uh, Hashimoto's. Mm -hmm. You say to me that is irrelevant. That's what I understand. Make you understand. I understand from what you uh, you're not really focusing on Hashimoto's. You say no. I need to focus on the T3, right? Because as long as the level is good. Now let's say that the thyroid is underproducing T4. Mm -hmm. Then I would assume that it will also underproduce T3. I think that's probably correct. Right. Thank you. So should shouldn't we focus also? on the correct T4 level, number one, so that, see, if the if the conversion factor is right, then let it do its own conversion and see if we can bring the T3 up that way by pushing up the T4. But at the same time, we should find out why is the thyroid not producing T4? Is it because lack of nutrients or because of autoimmune disorder? Great questions. Right. So I, I my, my what I'm trying to... Uh, figure out when people come in and say uh, to me and say, I'm dealing with low thyroid, then I say, do blood work. You know, you got to find out what your T4 and your T3 is. I also work with the thyroid stimulating hormone TSH. And I say, while you're at it, just do the antibody test. Find out if you maybe your problems are caused by an autoimmunity. Let's work on the autoimmunity. And again, a great question. And typically what I would defer a patient, if that patient had Hashimoto's disorder, yeah, I would not keep that person per se in my practice. I, that really should be in the endocrinologist okay. realm. Good. Yeah, good, he good. is the one. He is the expert in that. Yeah, uh, I am not. Um, what my job is, as I see my job, that patients have complaints of fatigue, complaints yeah. of hair loss, complaints you of, you know, they need to have optimization of their thyroid hormone. And again, I'm taking my pathway of how to treat that directly from my teachings with uh, Dr. Rosier. And I, his, I, I, that's why I'm learning today. His, I'm learning. His favorite product is the Nature Throid. Yeah. And because we want to raise that T3. So what's but, the difference between Armour Thyroid and Nature Throid? Armour is not available anymore? Is that what it I, is? I think that's part of it. I, I think Armour Thyroid was very similar to Nature Throid, yeah. but I don't see any patients on that anymore. I think the availability has gone way down. And again, we've been taught to use the Nature Throid. It's cheap, it's inexpensive, it's effective. It is. Yeah. And so more importantly, your question, you actually raised a good point. Every person that comes in to see me that has signs of hypothyroidism or thyroid insufficiency. Sure. Um, should I be doing tests for autoimmune disorder and Hashimoto's? Um, you raise a very good point. I actually have not gone down that pathway of thinking whether or not I should be doing that. But um, I think it's reasonable to think down those roads because it, it is. It's a, it's a blood test. And perhaps I would be uh, doing my patients a favor if I started screening them for that. My problem with that is, from a practical level, is um, I see a lot of patients uh, that have symptoms of low thyroid, yeah. typically age-related. You bet. Um, but I think it doesn't have to be. Yeah, but I think the return on my investment from always doing the Hashimoto's tests or the autoimmune tests, 
I think my return would be pretty low. Uh, does it justify the expense for that for that lab work? It's a question that I need to think about because a lot of times people do blanket tests. Sure. Is it worthwhile doing those tests if out of a thousand patients you're going to pick up one one person? Yeah, but I, I personally I think if we're talking about a gland mm -hmm. as small as the thyroid that is so important, we might as well get as much information out of it as we can. You're, you're correct. In and the one, in the one test, there yeah. are people who hate needles, right? And they say, "Well, just tell me what you want because they're going to stick that needle in me." <laughs> I want, no, I think I just want to do it once. I think you make a very, very valid point. Um, at the end of the day, I'm going to treat the Hashimoto's the same as I am. Uh, Interesting. Just a, yeah, it's, the treatment's the same. I don't know. Yeah, you got to bring the thyroid up. You yeah, got to sure, bring the hormone up. Sure, but you want to make sure that we don't keep triggering it okay. because obviously there is an autoimmune disease, and there is a there is a doctor in California. Her name is Dr. Amy Myers, M Y E R S, medical doctor who in medical school was losing a lot of weight and hair, and they said, "Ah, oh, you're just stressed from going to medical school." And she diagnosed herself with Graves' disease and started to make that her specialty, understanding autoimmune diseases. And she says that is a link between auto, all autoimmune diseases and leaky gut syndrome, which means there is an allergen that we're eating in our diet that causes uh, uh, perforation in the small intestines, which can call, cause an allergen and thereby can cause the symptoms. There is a direct relation that I have seen with gluten, for example, and people who are celiac have a tendency to also have thyroid problems. But that is, again... I'm not sitting here and saying, uh, I, I dispute what you're saying. I'm just saying, this has been my thought pattern for years. And what she said, for example, just like you say, the thyroid has fatigue and apathy and insomnia and a low libido and tingling hands and feet and all that stuff. She says, leaky gut has MS, diabetes 1, Hashimoto's, Graves, Parkinson's, uh, uh, you know, uh, Sjögren syndrome, all these you can have symptoms of different autoimmune diseases simply across the board. Mm -hmm. So you could have MS symptoms while you have Hashimoto symptoms, but the doctor already diagnosed you with MS or Hashimoto's and will not look into the other disease. She simply says, well, it's just a side effect of the Hashimoto's. So to me, it is uh, this whole hormone and glandular system is absolutely fascinating. It is. And, and I, I am so glad you're here uh, because... I am learning so much from you today, and I really hope the listeners are doing the same thing and, and, and contact you at your clinic. But it's uh, this is just something that 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 I, I wanted to throw at you and see what you know about it or what, if you work with it. And I realized what you're saying, if I get the T3 up to where I want it to be, then the symptoms are disappearing. But I don't want, I mean, I think that Western medicine has been criticized a lot for always going after the symptoms, solving the symptoms not trying to fight the cause of the problem. And I think if the cause is deeper and could be related to an allergen, then that started the weakening of the thyroid. If the thyroid constantly has to fight off these antibodies, I mean, I would get tired too. Sure. You know, so... Uh, no, I think you raised an excellent point. And I, the take-home for me is, uh, with a little research... Uh, and the cost, I have to factor in cost sure. of a lab test. Yeah, but it's worth it. If your quality of life is down the drain, you can decide to get, to design the new kitchen but most, or find but, out what but your most, thyroid is. But most of my clients with Hashimoto's yes. get better just by bringing the T3 up. That's fascinating. See, yeah, I love they to get hear better. That. Yeah, sure. They get better. So at the end of the day, um, I, I think I think the point is so well taken. It would be nice to have 
and know about that diagnosis, even though the treatment, from my perspective, of making the patient feel better is exactly the same. I see. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. But if, if people could also, if, if there is a connection between an allergen in their diet and they could and we could eliminate not just the thyroid problem, but we could eliminate possible autoimmune symptoms. I, I see why not go for it? I think that's terrific. Again, one of those questions that I'll have to say out of my pay grade. <laughs> <laughs> out of my pay grade. Boy, so T three between four and five, and and you start seeing uh, for certain people the symptoms already will improve within about uh, two to three weeks, but most people probably six to eight a weeks. Start, yeah. However, no. I, I've, I've got just a little side story. I've had two clients in the last, just in the last month that came in with profound symptoms. Uh, T3, one had 1.5, and oh. another person, 1.8. Wow. I mean, they were mirror images of one another. And then, of course, within two weeks, they just, they said, I'm... 50% better just after two weeks. Yeah. So as that gets closer and closer to that level, magic level of four, they'll feel you know even 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 better. Uh -huh. And that's my goal with both those patients is to bring them up to a level of four. Now, let me ask a practical question here, uh, not directly to the hormones. These kind of treatments, if people want to make an appointment with you, is this covered by insurance? Can they get insurance? Uh, how does it work? Complicated question, complicated answer okay. in some ways. I have designed my practice not to bill insurance. Okay. Um, I try to keep my costs way down. Uh, my costs to the patients are, are fairly low. Uh, so my business is a cash-only business. And I've looked into insurance, and the way the insurance industry is going, um, I've talked to several physicians and patients both. Yeah. With the high deductibles and most insurance plans now, patients end up paying, paying those costs up front out of pocket anyway. Now, it's deducted against uh, their deductible. If they get sick later on the year and they've met their deductible, then there's no more deductible for them. But the, it's been reported to me both by other physicians and patients that the deductibles are high enough uh, that uh, patients basically pay cash one way or the other. So we've just decided not to use insurance. Uh, I've heard many physicians say that it's a lot of work trying to get that money out of insurance. Yeah. Uh, I just talked to a physician two days ago that's converting his his program, same as mine. He lives in Salt Lake City, big, big, busy practice. We talked about it, and he's thinking about going farther and farther away from insurance just because of the high costs and his labor costs to hire somebody to go after that money from the insurance company because mm -hmm. they're so stingy. Yeah, and I have to say that the more people who make claims with insurance companies, obviously the premiums will right. go up. Now, so, but the people could use the health savings account if yes, they have one yes. for the treatments. And, now, that yeah. that doesn't mean I think it's right. Think about the benefits patients have from treating themselves with their hormones. Their risk of cardiovascular disease goes down. Women on estradiol and progesterone, their risk of breast cancer go down. Their risk of strokes go down. So think about what you're doing. It's like a cessation smoking program that insurance should pay for in their mm -hmm. policy because if they can get somebody off of cigarettes, their costs down the line are going to be minuscule compared to basically 
having a patient that's got lung cancer gets in the hospital with Absolutely. chemotherapy. Absolutely. So why not pay for these upfront preventive medicine uh, treatments? Uh, in the long run, it's going to cost the insurance company a lot less down the road in their general pool of people. I agree. Good point. Yeah. Now, uh, I know we're running out of time, but Wilson syndrome, uh, low T3, naturally occurring low T3, so they may have enough. Uh, that is a big issue that uh, comes up with you as well? No, it is not. Okay. No, no, not at all. All right. Uh, one thing I did want to finish off with Please. that um, is important to understand about the hormone treatments, postmenopausal women, men. Um, I concentrated initially at very early stages of my practice about making people feel better, and that we can do. Um, but keep in mind of the positive, positive medical aspects these hormones have. It decreases cardiovascular risk, decreases osteoporosis, improves overall health, increases fat metabolism. All these are side reactions to bringing people back to optimized hormone levels. Absolutely. I agree with you. And we follow those levels when we do blood tests. We're going to be following these levels between certain parameters. The osteoporosis effect, the cardiovascular effect of the estradiol we use we have to target certain levels to maintain that. All right. I wish you all the best. Thank you. And I really, really thank you for spending time I with us today. Thank you for uh, inviting me. And it's been, it's been great. Thank all you. All right. Folks, uh, next week we'll be back. We'll see you then.